From OFS, I'm Doug Shapiro. This is the Imagine a Place podcast, where we explore the power of place and the role of design in our lives. If you're tuning in today to settle into a nice, cozy podcast, where I tell you that you should relax and enjoy your smooth, predictable career in design, well, I'll just apologize right now. Amanda Schneider is my guest. She likes to mix it up. She's the founder of Sandow's Think Lab, the research arm for interior design media. She and her team dig in to understand trends, opportunities, and threats that swirl around the interiors industry. They are uniquely skilled at stepping back and taking a fresh look at things. Now, if you like what you hear from Amanda today and you want to stay up on what Think Lab is all about, you've got to tune into their podcast, DNA, Design Nerds Anonymous. Amanda and her team tackle some of the biggest and most important topics in our industry. The first episode that I tuned into, I ended up sharing it out to my colleagues with a must listen caption in all caps. Now, ThinkLab really busted on the scene a couple years ago when they hosted a forum titled Unraveling Furniture Frustrations. Here's our conversation. Okay, Amanda, I'm thinking back on one of your early forums that was around furniture frustrations and the handoffs that happened in that process. I'm curious to know, it's been a couple of years now, have we seen improvement? Is the process still frustrating? What do you think? You know, I think everyone, you know, is making strides. I think everyone's trying. I think it's hard to turn the Titanic, right? Um, and, and a whole industry can't change that quickly. And especially one like ours, where there's so many intricacies, it's quite complex, right? We've, we've got our purchasers, we've got our influencers, we've got our makers, we've got our distributors. And um, it's really, you know, that's what the furniture form, that's what was so unique about that project is it really brought all of those different, I guess, pieces of the ecosystem together for the first time to really talk about where some of that, that pain, where some of those frustrations are coming from. And it's not that anyone intends to be frustrating or painful or uh, not create a great customer experience, but it's that, you know, where these handoffs happen in those different areas of the ecosystem, we are unintentionally causing pain for kind of other parties. So I think that that's what the furniture forum did. And one of the things that we say that we do at Think Lab is we joke that we're the friend that tells you when you have broccoli in your teeth. Um, so it's, it's, uh, not always a fun process to be part of. <laughs> so to your point about, I don't know if we've publicly said frustration and furniture in the same place before, but you know, just like when you have broccoli in your teeth, everyone else can see it, <laughs> but you sometimes. So it's really sometimes calling attention to those things helps us all fix it. Nice. Nice. Well, that makes sense. And uh, certainly I'm happy for people like you that can kind of stand a little outside of it all and, and point out some of what is just not working. Um, <laughs> right. Well, and I say that we we get really excited about problems at Think Lab because to us means that means opportunity. And, you know, if, if you see every problem as an opportunity to solve, it really gives you that opportunity to improve it. And and I think especially in an industry like ours, one of the things that I say frequently is that, you know, we're obsessed with product innovation and we've got so much beautiful product and that comes, you know, faster and faster. I think most product manufacturers are feeling the need to innovate and you know have more options faster but i believe that the future innovation the biggest future innovations in this in industry are really going to come from process innovation and not product and i think uh 
let me explain what I mean by that is if you look at how other industries have been disrupted um, and, and highly complex industries um, really are the most ripe for disruption because when someone comes in to simplify, that's where things really get shaken up. Um, if you look at industries like taxi <laughs> and how they were disrupted by Uber or Airbnb and how they were, or I guess the hotel industry and how it was disrupted by Airbnb, none of these were, you know, they didn't build a better taxi. They didn't build a better hotel. They built a better process by which the customer can, can gain that experience. And, and so I think that's where, you know, starting with the furniture forum as a great example, that's where we use this proprietary mapping technique to help us, you know, identify and visualize these problems because wherever there are problems, again, that pain indicates opportunity and that's where the biggest innovation is going to come from. Well, and I, I guess I would say understand the irony in that is that, that I'm a product designer saying that. So, um, you know, it doesn't mean that we don't have to innovate on product and we should keep creating new and beautiful things. But I think that this also applies to the world of design. Um, you know, if you look at it and, and designers product is spaces. Um, and one of the most interesting things that, that kind of has happened, I guess, accelerated by COVID is um, I participated or I was a listener on a CBRE flash call very early on in the pandemic, really talking about, you know, what's going on with owners and occupiers of these large corporate real estate spaces. And one of the things they said is one of the top three things keeping building landlords up at night is uh, the inflexibility of our traditional lease, right? Um, because if you look at the, the average company's tenure on the S&P 500 has nearly been cut in half over the last 40 years, business is just really moving faster than ever. And yet our average leases, like I remember in the height of the 2008-2009 uh, lead changes, you know, we were encouraging people to sign 20-year leases, right? Obviously, they're not doing that today. Um, but the average lease cycle is kind of getting shorter, especially in very specific markets, and people are looking for more flexible options. And, and I think that that's a huge opportunity for process improvement, whether we're looking at the design process. Um, you know, WeWork took it to an extreme <laughs> where we systematized it and productized it, and every WeWork kind of looked the same, right? Came, came from the same Pinterest page, right? Um, but I think there's huge opportunity even, you know, in services that are available and applying the way designers think to a lot of these, you know, lease changes and spaces that, that might be moving in different ways. All right. I'd love to hear your thoughts on pendulum when it comes to trends, right? Trends will swing one way and then the pendulum will swing back the other way. And with the pace of change, we keep speeding up, speeding up, speeding up. You know, what's the end game here? Are we just going to speed up forever or, or will the pendulum swing back? <laughs> I mean, I wish I had a crystal ball. Um, I think everyone's like looking for that person with a crystal ball right now. So anyone that tells you they know is crazy. Um, but I'll tell you, I think that, you know, a lot of people are causing this or calling this period of time the great reset, right? This is a chance where things had been accelerating, 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 and just moving faster, faster, faster. And I think this has given us a real chance to figure out kind of where we want to be in the middle, right? We were, um, you know, the pendulum started with, let, let's look at just workplace, I guess, <laughs> You know, um, workplace was built on a completely physical uh, model, right? Um, because we didn't have computers when the workplace was invented, when cubicles were invented, when the corner office was invented. We didn't have all the technology that we had today. So a lot of our work culture, our work processes, our work systems were built around being in person. 
But if you look at what this great pause has done, is it's really taken us to the opposite extreme, right? It's taken us to a completely virtual world, which is very uncomfortable because that change happened very, very quickly. So it's forced us to really reframe a lot of our work processes, our work culture, our work mode, very, very quickly to a 100% virtual remote world, at least for the knowledge workers that are able to do their jobs remotely, right? Mm -hmm. So I think what we're going to find is a pendulum is going to land somewhere in the middle. But I think it's going to, I hope it's going to be a refreshing balance of the two, right? And there's going to be a need to be in person. I think many people right now are missing being in an office. They're missing seeing their colleagues face-to-face. They're missing the casual interactions. I think that people will want that, but maybe not five days a week with a one-hour commute each way each day, right? So I, I hope that the pendulum, you know, I think the pendulum has swung quite opposite in the, the virtual way right now. Um, But I hope that we land in the middle somewhere where we can really find a a healthy balance of being in person where it makes sense and being virtual where it makes sense. Um, And I think that this great reset has happened that way, you know, in our family life too. I know I've got three sons and they're busy with athletics and, you know, things like that. And we're usually like running, running, running. The pace had increased, increased, increased. And then, you know, come March 2020, everything stops, right? And I can tell you, we've had more family dinners and fire pit nights and, you know, all of the things that we were too busy to be doing <laughs> in the last six months than, than we've had in the last six years, probably. So right. our family is talking about, you know, what do we want to keep from this great reset? <laughs> what do we want to keep from this time? And I think in the same way, I hope a lot of businesses, I hope a lot of companies um, really look at, you know, what do we want the U.S. to look like? What do we want our work culture to look like? What do we want our companies to look like? And I think it's going to be more important than ever as you try to be someplace that people want to work, um, that you find a balance between that. And, and I think it's going to require a lot more transparency and trust for our workers. Um, it's going to require a lot more <laughs> clarity of vision from our leaders in terms of what we're asking for and then trust that those workers are going to deliver it. Yeah, there, there was a lot into what you had just said there, even even kind of going back to the idea that the, the furniture we're using was designed before... A lot of it was designed before the biggest work tools that we have now were put into play. I mean, even really the phone, you know, might be, might have eclipsed all work tools for, for many of us. I don't even know if you can call it a phone anymore, but whatever. I also, yeah, yeah. I, I want to get, get back into process a little bit because I, I thought that that was an interesting comment. And I would love to know in, in the world of design, you know, are, are there problems designers are going to face in the future that they're not prepared for or not talking enough about right now? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's really hard. We had this conversation at the Giants of Design event. So this is an event held by Interior Design Magazine that brings the top 200 interior design firms and leadership from those firms together to really talk about some of these challenges. And um, we kind of had this process challenge conversation there. And one of the things one of the principal designers said is that, you know, what we're doing right now is as things speed up, we are taking the traditional design process and we're trying to shrink it down. We're trying to do the same steps, but do them faster. And that's not necessarily working today. And I think, you know, in this great pause, in this period that we're in right now, you know, we're, we're hearing the same thing too. We're trying to take the same processes that we were doing <laughs> in person, you know, think vision boards and things on a wall and images and fabrics and touching them. And we're trying to do them virtually. And, and that's really hard too. So I think it's going to take a pause to really kind of rethink even the traditional design process. And, um, you know, unfortunately, and, and we're, 
uh, we're actually starting our own podcast. Um, so I've been heavy into that. And I interviewed this designer the other day who said the most fascinating thing. She said, when you look at that process and what's getting squished, uh, it's really the discovery process that gets the most squished. So we're going to have to get more. And, and that's probably the most important piece, right? Um, that's where a lot of the exploration happens. So I think that that's going to take some real thinking too. And, you know, it's, it's something that, that Think Lab hopes to get deeper involved in is, is how do we like look at that traditional process that's been taught in design schools for 50 years and, you know, keep the parts that are the most interesting and the most profound and the most valuable for these like incredible designer brains and how they think um, that add the most value and then systematize the rest of it. Right. And, and I think that that's another one of these pendulums right? You, you look at the way that the traditional design process is done, which says, you know, on one end, we're going to start from the beginning. We're going to understand everything that's unique about you. And we're going to create something totally, wholly unique for you, your company, your organization, your facility, whatever that is. Um, and then you look at the opposite end of the spectrum, which I think, you know, WeWork is a great example of that, where they said the opposite. They said, hey, listen, Mr. Company, you know, we are the experts. <laughs> we are opening up a million square feet every month around the globe. And, um, you know, we're learning from that. We've got people stationed there. They're looking at that. So we are going to tell you what's going to work for your company. We've got best practices from across the globe and we're going to start you there. And then we're going to iterate from that. Right. So it was like, to me, almost a flip of our traditional design model, the ultimate templatizing and kind of putting it everywhere. And I think there's room for that. Again, looking at two extremes, you often find your balance in the middle. Um, but I don't know that we've found the right middle ground. And um, I think that's, you know, another opportunity, maybe another pain point to really look at that and, and see where that middle ground is going to be. Yeah. You know, this, um, this idea that discovery is getting missed, I think is interesting. It's happening in our industry. But even if we look outside of, of architecture and design and the built environment, look across all industries, don't you wonder if discovery is being missed kind of on a broader scale? Like, you know, the, mm -hmm. the stuff that has to happen before the planning and the doing, you know, and it's like, Absolutely. are we planning and doing and planning and doing and we're doing it so fast that, you know, this this thing called discovery just kind of gets smushed <laughs> down a little bit. And I, I, I actually I've thought a lot about discovery. And, and I think just that word in general, if you think about the role of discovery in human history, it's pretty it's a pretty big deal. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. the wheel, the light, right? I mean, it's it's kind of <laughs> right. created who we are today. So, I think it's 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 a shame if if all that gets smushed, or do we just need to find more efficient ways to discover? Absolutely, and I think you know that's really interesting. I'm trying to find the name of this um, economist that he called himself a historian and a futurist. Uh, it was a great podcast that I listened to a while back. I'll have to find that and send it to you. Um, but I think that that plays into, you know, um, if you look at, again, kind of how the world evolved, uh, it started with uh, you were born into a family, right? And, and information was passed down via story. So whatever family you were born into, uh, you kind of got the information that that family had accumulated and then they passed it down through story as they could, you know, and then we advanced to writing and writing it down and that got it to more people. And then, you know, we invented things like ways to travel from the wagon to the automobile, and we could travel faster, we could tell more stories, we could share more things. We've accelerated that, obviously, with the advent of the internet. And really, this is the first time in our history that we have been fully democratized in terms of information, right? You look at 
the, the kids that will walk up to an iPad and, or walk up to a magazine and try and like grow it and shrink it. Like you've all seen that video, mm-hmm. um, like a magazine, you know, uh, and, and trying to do it like an iPad. Um, these kids today are growing up with access to more information in seconds than most generations previously have had their whole life. And, and I think that there's benefits to that, right? Like imagine how many more Mozarts and American idols and, and people like that we're going to discover. It's fascinating. It's great. But we also have to be careful. Like every sword is double edged <laughs> to our conversation about these extremes. Um, you know, that's also where, you know, you can walk into a space today and you can see that it clearly comes from Pinterest, right? Um, we all saw the same pictures. We all have access to the same information. So I think it really does put, you know, more pressure than ever on creativity and in making these connections between two disparate or seemingly disparate things. And I think that the beautiful thing about that is to me, like, um, we can program it to do certain things. And there's, you know, been some crazy experiments where the computers have outthought humans. But when it comes to true creativity and inspiration and things like that, like, I, I don't think that can ever be truly systematized or replaced. And and I think that that should be really encouraging for anyone with a design thinking brain. Right. You would think uh, designers shall inherit the earth. huh? <laughs> <laughs> Theoretically, theoretically. What is it about technology right now that's changing uh, design? That's either changing the outcome or the process? I've got two thoughts floating in my head. <laughs> so I want to go back to one where you say designers shall inherit the earth, because I think that's another challenge is that, you know, this is a capitalistic economy. And I think one of the interesting things is you kind of have to follow the money trail. And that's where I think designers are going to be challenged in the near future is that they're not built that way. Uh, You don't meet a designer that does it for the love of money. (laughs) You meet designers with incredible passion. And I think that that's another fear that I have for the design industry. I don't know if you want to put this in the podcast or not, but it, it really is as we look at corporate real estate and kind of how you know, some of the um, big changes that are happening and this ties into technology here in a minute, but you know, um, designers don't have that voracious business sense. So for, for that to be true in order for that to be true for designers to inherit the earth, I think we have to find a way to tie this passion and love and design and the, the results that we can get from design into business terms and business results and things that people that are not designers can can understand. Um, and I think that that's a huge area that our industry has struggled in the past. And, you know, where companies like WeWork that systematize it, you know, it felt good. It may not have been good. And anyone with a design background who walked through some of those spaces might not have seen it. But um, so it wasn't authentic, but it was believable. And I think if we can mix that authenticity and believability with a business case, like that's when designers will inherit the earth. Um, so then let's move to talk about technology, because I do think that technology is going to be a big piece of this. So um, I think that we could attack this from the pain side and we could attack this from the innovation side. So um, from the innovation side, you know, where I see technology really trying to innovate, um, I see things like uh, CBREs floored and JLL's insight, you know, that are trying to, again, systematize things with technology. But what they're trying to do is speed up this process using technology as a way to, you know, time is the new currency. So as a way to save time, um, they're using technology to speed those things up. But this is where on the pain side, you know, when I look at technology, I think one of the biggest issues, especially in the furniture side of this, is really looking at uh, the, the pass-throughs that we go through with technology. 
and, and we actually did this once where we mapped out the typical process for a furniture bid that it goes through uh, when it comes to technology. And so typically a designer is looking online, maybe they start with a Pinterest board, they start with a collection of images, they start with something that's gonna be sent to say, I'm looking for something like this. Then let's say a furniture dealer gets that, that furniture dealer has to pull options, maybe it's brochures, maybe it's web links, something like that. So they're taken out of one format into another. Um, it, it accelerates on and goes through a series of, you know, configura and software programs that the dealers are in. Oftentimes, you know, there's only specific people at the dealers that are in those programs. So it's pulled from those and goes through a series of sometimes PowerPoints or Excels or sometimes when there's bids, <laughs> Word and various other documents. Um, and it ultimately also has to get into what we're using on the designer side, which is, you know, Revit and, and, and other visualization software that kind of flows into the architecture. So if you really were to kind of map the, the process of taking it out of one platform and into another platform, I think that's where a lot of the opportunity <laughs> comes from again with technology is to just make these tools talk to one another, which sounds simpler than it is. But, you know, I look at companies like Ikea that just bought Geomagical Labs, you know, that's really using kind of this uh, mixed reality to help you kind of visualize things in your room. And this is where I think that the contract industry could maybe find some additional inspiration from the consumer side, you know, whether we're talking about Ikea and those, you know, that VR or even uh, I think it's Sherwin-Williams has an app where you can take a picture of your room and paint it whatever color you want and change that out and see what it's going to look like before you paint it. Um, I think the more we can integrate this and make it simple and easy to do, um, the more you know accessible this is all going to become. I agree. Now, if that app from Sherwin-Williams, if I could just hit a button and my room was painted, that would be so much better. Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's what we need Maybe. next. <laughs> yeah, that's what we need next. You never know. You never know. So let's let's just, you know, we, we, we haven't really talked a whole lot about, about COVID, and I think that's, a, that's a, an okay thing here. But is there something about this era that will forever change the spaces that we're designing? <laughs> Inevitably, yes, but also I hope not. Uh, and let me kind of explain what I mean there. So, you know, I think that every significant downturn in, in our recent history has a timestamp. And I'm sure even, you know, before my recent history being history, I can remember there was probably others. But for me in my career, let's start with 2001. You know, the, the lasting kind of thing in space was, was around we never really think about security in the same way again. Right. I can remember a day when I got to walk my grandmother to the gate at the airport, right, and hug her goodbye and watch her walk down that runway. Like that doesn't happen today. Our check-in process is different. When it comes to buildings, you know, we put in turnstiles and there's different check-in policies. And, you know, even 20 years later, those check-in processes are are still there, right? Uh, and we see physical evidence of that still in our buildings. From 2008, 2009, it was, you know, around financial security. I don't know that that one had such a lasting impact on space, but it certainly, you know, we never think about finances the same way again. And I think that the one that's going to be lasting from this downturn is that we're never really going to think about hygiene in the same way again. And, you know, theoretically, we should have thought to wash our hands uh, prior to COVID, uh, and that shouldn't be a new thing. But um, I do think we're going to see, you know, a, a lasting changes to the space as, as a result of COVID. And what those are, I think we're still at a point in time that anyone who's guessing is really speculating. I think a lot of people are thinking about materiality and how that might change. I think that a lot of people are thinking about, um, you know, spacing between people and average amount of square footage per person. 
Um, um, I think that a lot of people are thinking, you know, if you read that Cushman and Wakefield six foot office about even, you know, flow through a space and how that might work. But I think the danger with those things is a lot of them are what we call band-aid solutions. And they're things that make sense for the right now that I sure hope are not here 20 years from now. You know, this is a pretty big cultural shift and we need those visual cues to kind of remind us and help us learn, you know, new ways to circulate or, you know, <laughs> new distancing or things like that. But they also kind of induce fear. Um, one of the write-ins from our, we're doing this industry impact survey that's really measuring, you know, the impact of COVID on the design industry. And we've been doing this for the last 24 weeks now. And one of the write-ins that was really memorable to me was a designer who wrote in, like, are these manufacturers all going to have take-back programs for all these stinking screens that are here now, right? Because that's going to be a timestamp of fear. It's going to be one of these Band-Aid solutions where we're not looking at great design. <laughs> we're looking at things to kind of Band-Aid the problem today, and maybe those are needed right now to help people kind of learn new behaviors and new cultural things or just to, to feel safe in space. And so if that helps right now, okay, but then what's going to happen with those at the end of their useful life, right? You know, I think that we've, we've seen this shift from sustainability of buildings to sustainability of the humans within the building, and I think we're going to see a huge shift to really making the most of outdoor areas, which, again, I think was, was happening pre-COVID, but maybe is happening faster now. So I think it's going to, you know, create some opportunities, but I think as a, a design industry, I hope that we... Um, again, are just kind of purposeful with some of our considerations um, for that and um, really thoughtful in, you know, definitely minding the functional needs, but not time stamping it in an era of fear um, and right. making sure that that we're still creating <laughs> some lasting positive change for the future. Right, right. I I think your point around Band-Aids and seeing a lot of those and and it is right on and, and perhaps we haven't even yet seen if there is a timestamp what it will actually be yet. You know, we might not right. have yet put into play how this will change our spaces because we're still figuring it out. Right. And I think, you know, as a research firm, <laughs> we have a lot of people coming to us and saying, okay, tell us what's going to happen. And, um, you know, again, we're a research firm, not a magic eight ball. Uh, no matter how much you shake us, you know, we can't come up with <laughs> exactly where it's going. We can kind of look at some of these early, you know, predictors and early like, hey, what about this? And when those start coming up in multiple places, you know, that's usually a positive sign. But, um, you know, I think we're still in the middle of this. I think it's still in the hands of the virus and, you know, government's response to the virus. And, you know, we're all still learning a, a new way of working. Um, I was looking at all the back to school pictures and thinking, you know, how normal it feels right now to look at all these kids in face masks, you know, standing in front of their house with their entering first grade sign and um, right. how bizarre that felt, <laughs> you know, just a few short months ago to, to even leave the house. Yeah, it's, it is wild. I've had several of those moments where, uh, you know, I'm in a grocery store and then all of a sudden I realize we're all wearing masks and I have a little mini, mini uh, two second panic attack. It's like, what's happening? Right. Right. And, <laughs> um, and it and kind it, of feels normal now. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So we talked uh, a little bit about trend. We talked about the trends that, um, you know, the trends of, of time, speeding up, right? Uh, that that discovery process kind of being threatened. We've talked about uh, a little bit about these band-aids that are coming out right now. So some of these trends were trends that I guess were concerning, but at the same time, as you mentioned in the early stages of this, problems 
are also opportunities. Are there trends that that are really exciting to you right now? Are there some things that you really like, maybe even outside of just design and space, but but our industry? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I guess if I had to pick one thing that's really exciting to me right now, um, it's really kind of the opportunity for design to innovate right now. Um, I kind of feel like looking around like, hey guys, this is our moment, <laughs> right? Um, and, and, and this was, you know, not to go negative again, but this was another thing from a recent podcast that I listened to that talked about, you know, in 2001, the casualty was the tech industry. Uh, in 2008, the casualty was like the home mortgage industry. And, um, you know, if you look around right now, I think the potential casualty is the, the contract interiors industry. So again, that, that kind of hurts, but it's also really bringing an awareness to the industry that we've never had before. And if you look at the, the opportunity to get this economy restarted, you know, I heard a statistic from Yelp that said 60% of restaurants are likely to fail uh, in this time period. Like that's pretty incredible. Um, you know, you can read all the stats about retail and what's happening in retail. Um, and, you know, I think everyone's anticipating a potentially profound or potentially not change in, in office behavior and attitude. Um, but never in our history, <laughs> never in my history in this industry, has the general public been more aware um, of, of kind of space and how you feel in space and how space can make you feel positive or negative or safe or not safe. And, um, you know, that's what makes me look around and say, like, hey, guys, this is our moment to really kind of prove the value of connecting those emotions through design, through space, through how you feel when you're in space. Um, and I love that opportunity. You know, I think that that should be exciting for all of us. So let's say um, right now, you know our audience. It's it's mostly um, the Andy world. Is there mm -hmm. something right now that a designer can put in their bag and take away from you? Like, what is it that you hope they listen and leave with? I mean, here's what I would say. And I'm going to focus on this idea of process innovation. And you've probably heard this story before, but it's the story of the, the Christmas ham. Um, and it's the story of a mother and daughter making Christmas dinner, or you can say Hanukkah roast or whatever other meat religion that you choose, um, where they uh, were making Christmas dinner and they cut off the ends of the ham and put it in the pan and put it in the oven. And the little girl asked her mother, she said, well, why, why do you cut off the ends of the ham? And the mom said, you know what? I'm not sure. Let's ask grandma. So they call grandma and they ask grandma and grandma says, well, because my pan was too small. So that's when everyone groans. Um, but I think as we look at process innovation, you know, I hear a lot of designers that are just time crunched and trying to deliver in this, you know, crazy accelerated world that we live in. And um, I think that this is our chance to look at the process that we go through. Um, in every design project and in, in our jobs and our life and really, you know, reframe and, and kind of look for those pain points, look for that broccoli in our own teeth <laughs> and, um, you know, see, see what change we want to make in our own lives that will, you know, support that time as currency these days. Um, you know, if this isn't working, then, then how might we make it work? I, I love the ham story. It's just so spot on. <laughs> how, how many other things are like that right now? Oh my gosh. Discovery processes are shrinking. There's pressure to templatize. We've got messy handoffs and technologies that don't talk to each other. My head's kind of spinning at this point. I mean, what do we do with all this? Well, 
Here's what I'm gonna do. Be my own Think Lab. Yes, the way we do business is getting disrupted and it's critical that organizations seek out the partnerships like Think Lab that can help point out that broccoli in their teeth. But it's not just businesses that are going through this time warp pace of change. It's our individual roles, the way we learn, the way we network, the way that you are adding value in your business, even how your personal brand stays relevant. So thank you, Amanda, for shedding light on change and the opportunity it brings. You've inspired me. I'm gonna make an effort to step back, take a good look at what's around me, and be my own Think Lab. If you enjoyed today's episode, we would really appreciate a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. To discover more design stories, visit us at ofs.com backslash imagine a place. From OFS, I'm Doug Shapiro, and you've been listening to Imagine a Place.